If you have spent any time at the beach doing what I love to do, and that is just walk in the surf, I think I could do it for hours if I had the opportunity. You have probably noticed either on the beach or in many cases flowing back and forth in the water, driftwood. And it's called driftwood because that's what it does. It just drifts. Every wave that comes in, it just sort of moves with wherever the water is taking it, and it moves down the beach with wherever the tide is taking it, just drifting back and forth, hour after hour, no particular design or purpose in it, just drifting with the power of the water, totally at the mercy of the power of the water. And how many times in life do we find ourselves like driftwood? We're just getting pulled back and forth and all around by whatever forces happen to be around us. Whatever the tide has to be is turning and pulling, that's the direction that we just automatically go because there's no real purpose or direction there. We're just sort of drifting. And sometimes we can get caught in places in life where the tides of what we're dealing with are so strong and powerful that they seem to pull us and we almost feel like we have no control over it. Now, at the beach, there's something else going on there. And it's not down on the water being pulled back and forth. It's on top of the water. And those are called surfers. And a surfer is an entirely different species in driftwood. They're not being pulled back and forth. They're in command. They're on top of the wave, and they're doing the best they can to stay on top of that wave and harness the power and the direction of the water to go in the direction they want to go in and to accomplish what they want to accomplish and riding that wave out until it hits the shore. Now, let me ask you in your life today, are you more like the driftwood or are you more like a surfer? Are you just being pulled back and forth any way the water of life wants to take you? Or are you in control, got a purpose, got a direction, and you're riding the wave, not being controlled by the wave? The last spiritual fruit we're going to look at today in Paul's list of the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, is that he speaks of self-control. And self-control is the idea that I'm not drifting back and forth in life. Rather, I am surfing the waves of life that are coming. Got a purpose, got a direction. And with God's strength and help and direction and the fullness of the Spirit, I'm in control of the situation instead of it controlling me. Galatians chapter 5. You will turn there in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to begin at verse 22, looking at those fruits of the Spirit that we've been looking at over the last number of weeks. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. We looked at last week. Gentleness is strength under control. It is strength that is used not to abuse, but it is strength that's used to focus, to accomplish God's purpose. It deals with people in the context of the purpose that he has for their lives. We saw last week that the strength that Jonathan displayed in his relationship to his best friend David, when his father Saul was consumed with jealousy and wanted to get rid 
of David. Because of this gentleness in his life, he said, you know, I recognize that God's got his hand on David and that it is God's will for David to be the king instead of me being the king, even though he was the rightful heir. And because of the gentleness, he was able to discern and to move with the will of God, not fight the will of God. Gentleness. And then self-control. Now notice what he says following that, because he just attaches right to this idea of self-control. Against such things there is no law, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And my sermon outline is in your bulletin, and I invite you, if you would, to follow along with me. Self-control, what is it? The word self-control is used, this word is used in the Greek language often to speak of an athlete's discipline of his body. It's the idea that an athlete looks at his body, he recognizes the strengths that he's got, he sees his weaknesses, and he says, you know, I'm not going to just let this body hanging out there and hope for the best. I'm going to condition it. I'm going to strengthen it. I'm going to work at it. And as I work at it, I harness the potential that it has. And so the idea of self-control is harnessing what God has put into our lives and developing what God has put into our lives so that we can be used to the maximum for Him. It's not falling out of control with anger that we do not control, with fear, and we're going to see this later, with jealousy and with bitterness. When we get consumed with jealousy and bitterness and fear, what happens is we start losing control of life. We begin to focus on that instead of focusing on much of anything else. Now, this idea of self-control means that I have to take responsibility. I have to take responsibility for my life. I have to take responsibility for the decisions that I make. I have to take responsibility for where I'm headed in life. I can't go through life blaming everybody else or the circumstances of life. Rather, I have to say, you know something? If my life is going to have quality and direction and purpose, if I'm going to live out what God has for me and what He's calling me to, then I've got to take responsibility for my life, and I've got to take responsibility to see that that happens in my life. I am not the innocent victim of whatever is happening to me. If you live as a victim, you will never go anywhere much in life. If I live as a victim, I'm just sitting back all the time blaming everybody else and saying, hey, I'm helpless and I can't do anything. And when I become helpless, I lose hope. But rather when I throw away the victimization thing and say, you know something, I may not have been able to control or help everything that came into my life, but I can control my response to it. I can control whether it controls me and whether it's going to control my future. And this idea of the spiritual fruit of self-control is that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to teach us and strengthen us to say, I'm not going to live as a victim. I'm not going to claim victimization as my theme song in life. I'm really rather going to say I'm going to learn from what happened, but then I'm going to move forward. I'm going to move forward in the will of God, in the plan of God, in the strength of God, and I am not going to become whatever victimized me in life. I'm going to become what God has designed for me to become. That is the idea of the self-control that the Spirit of God produces within us. Now, the first thing in this spiritual fruit of self-control is we have to experience a subtraction in our life. Notice what he says 
in verse 24. Those who, notice the verb there, belong to Christ. I belong to Jesus. I do not belong to my circumstances. I do not belong to whatever has come along and knocked me out in life. I belong to Jesus. I can't stress that enough. If you and I will live with a mindset that ultimately, finally, from start to finish, I belong to Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus, and here's the subtraction, have crucified the flesh. Now, the word flesh there is a concept in the New Testament. It doesn't speak of our human bodies. It is rather the idea of the stuff in me that just wants to sin and live in pride and walk away from God and do my own thing. And notice what he says here, have crucified the flesh. Now, the word crucifixion is a tough concept. It was the worst form and most cruel form of death known in the ancient world. And if somebody was crucified, you could mark it down. They were dead. When Romans crucified somebody, they made sure that whoever they crucified was put to death. So when the crucifixion was over with, there was no question about whether somebody lived through it or not. If you heard somebody was crucified, you know they were dead. And he says, if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to have self-control, then what does he say? We have got to crucify the part of us that wants to run out here and just live any way we want to do our own thing. We've got to take the responsibility to put it to death. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to sin in my life, the last thing in the world I like to do is claim responsibility for it. I like to say that I can't control it, and I can't handle it, and it's too much for me, and it's just too powerful for me. Therefore, I've got to, you know, just tolerate it or sort of keep it there. Now, deep inside, the reason we like to say that is because if we're really honest, we enjoy it. So that's the reason I don't want to put it to death. But he says you've got to put it to death. Now, some of you that are my age and older are going to remember a comedian back in the 70s called Flip Wilson. <laughs> and Flip Wilson had a saying that became extremely popular. You can say it with me. The devil made me do it, all right? Some of you all have said that, and you don't even realize where it came from, but the devil made me do it. And we enjoyed saying that. I mean, when Flip Wilson came out with that, he gave us an excuse. The devil made me do it, because I'm putting all the blame and responsibility on the devil. The devil made me do it. I didn't do it. I couldn't help myself. Spiritual fruit of self-control means that I don't blame the devil. I don't blame other people. I say I take responsibility for my life. I did it. I have to own up to it. I've got to crucify it. Crucify what, he says? He says, your passions and your desires. The word passions there is an interesting word. It means the suffering that comes as a result of the evil I've done. He's saying, I'm putting to death the suffering that's the result of the stupid, sinful things that I have done. Now, what does he mean by that? How many people live their lives with regret? They are just always consumed with regret. Man, I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't said that. I, I could, we could just never get past the past because I'm living so much looking at it and regretting what I did. And he's saying, you put that to death. You see, I never get past the past if I don't stop regretting the past. 
And he says, you put that to death. It was a mistake. I screwed up. I messed up. But you know something? Jesus has forgiven me. It's under his blood. It's in the past. And I am moving forward with what God has for me. I'm not going to live with regret. I'm going to rather live with expectation of what God wants to do. And then he says, the desires, that is the cravings, the longings, the lust. I'm going to put those things to death. Now, I'm going to be preaching a series of messages in a few weeks on the mind. So let me just give you a, a little hint here as to where we're going on that. When he says here, putting to death the cravings, the longings, the lust, that all starts in the mind. Where I choose to place my mind, where I choose to focus my mind, what I choose to think on and think about is where my craving is going to be. So if I am feeding the wrong craving by putting my mind there, the craving is going to do what? It's going to get stronger, and it's going to get stronger, and it's going to get stronger. And sooner or later, the craving is going to move into the feelings department, and then it's going to move into the actions department. That usually takes all of about 30 seconds for it to make those moves. On the other hand, if I'm placing my mind where it ought to be on the things of the Lord, then that's going to impact my feelings and going to impact my actions. So he says we got to put to death the cravings. i got to stop putting the cravings. He says put them to death. Now look at the addition, verse 25. He says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. How do you keep in step with the Spirit? This has been my experience, and I'll just throw it out to you as a, as a word of advice because this is what I've experienced in my life. I find that the Holy Spirit does not walk into our lives and beat us over the head with a two-by-four. If we get to the place that the Lord has got to hit us over the head with a two-by-four to get on our attention, we in bad shape. You don't want to live like that, believe me. I mean, a few times God's had to jerk me up. It is no fun when he has to jerk us up and get our attention. So you really do not want to live like that, okay? What I find is what I call the gentle, persistent nudges of the Holy Spirit. The gentle, persistent nudging of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been going down a road with a GPS system going and you make a wrong turn? What does the GPS do? It recalibrates and tells you what you need to do. Now, that's if you're a woman. If you're a man, you don't use a GPS system. You just get lost and stay in denial about the law, but the fact that you're lost for 20 minutes and then you own up to it, all right? <laughs> I should have got ever asked for directions. You know, it's just against our manhood to ask for directions. But the GPS system will automatically recalibrate you and get you back on the right place. And what he's saying here is live by the Spirit and also walk by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit recalibrates inside of us every time we make a wrong turn in life. And he they have that gentle, persistent nudging of the Spirit. You're going the wrong way. You made the wrong decision. You're not going to feel good about this. You're not going to think about good about this. I'm going to just stay on your case and stay on your case and stay on your case. I'm going to be gentle. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not a bully. I'm going to just continue to nudge you and nudge you and nudge you. And what we have to do is be sensitive to how the Spirit of God is speaking to us and is nudging us. And when we do that, we will stay in step with 
the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to do this, but if I ask Regina to play the piano, and I tried to dance to what she was playing, all right, and it would be a disaster. My wife's shaking her head, no, all right, so we're not going to demonstrate this. But if I ask her to do that, what she would be doing is setting the rhythm for what I am doing. And the idea here is the Holy Spirit of God is setting the rhythm for my life, okay? And part of the rhythm that He sets for our lives is not just the pace of our lives, not just the direction of our lives, but it's the joy of our lives. God doesn't want us just to make the journey. He wants wants us to make the journey with some joy. He wants us to make the journey with some peace. He wants us to have a journey that we enjoy. And so that's the idea of keeping in step with the Spirit. Now, I want us to look at Esther because she demonstrated this. And I told the children just a few moments ago Esther's story. Now, I'm going to add a little bit to what I told the kids, okay? Esther, by a miraculous set of events, Esther chapter 4, she became the queen of Persia. And Persia was a powerful kingdom, probably the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth at that time. She becomes the queen of Persia. And Haman is second in command, and he thinks he's hot stuff, and he wants everybody to bow down to him. So he goes through town, and if you don't bow down to him, then he sparks an attitude. And Mordecai is a Jew. He will only bow to the Lord God. So Mordecai says, I'll bow down to God and to God only. And Haman really gets an attitude about it. So he goes before the king and he says, I want you to have an edict. I want you to have a rule that if you don't bow down to me, when I bow down to Haman when he goes by, then you're going to be killed. And that's going to go not only for Mordecai, but for all the Jews. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, you've got to do something about this. All of your people are going to get wiped out. And Esther says, man, I cannot do it because if the king doesn't summon me in, to his royal chambers, I can be killed. As best we can tell, she'd been married to the king for about 10 years, and she had not been in the king's presence for a month. Now, that's not saying a whole lot about the status of their marriage at that point, that she hadn't laid eyes on him in a month. But nonetheless, she was a little nervous. Now, if I was the queen and the king had asked me to come see him for about a month, I'd probably be a little bit nervous too. So this is what he says to her, beginning in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time, for such an hour as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Mordecai says, you got to go, Esther. And Esther's thinking to herself, if I go and I walk in to that throne room and he's in a bad mood, I am history. 
Because all he's got to look at the guards and say is, she's gone. And he had already done that with the queen who preceded Esther. In fact, the way Esther got to be queen is he got ticked off with the first queen, did her in, and then they did interviews, and Esther won the interview, and she became the queen. So she's thinking, history liable to repeat itself. You see, her battle, understandably, but her battle was with fear. If I walk in there and do what Mordecai, you were asking me to do, I could lose my life. And notice how Mordecai responds to her. He says, Esther, you need to understand something. First of all, don't think you can hang out in the palace and be a Jew, and sooner or later it's not going to be discovered, and you're going to get killed. And Esther, you need to understand something. God's giving you an opportunity here, and if you pass it up, He'll just raise somebody else up to do the job. So you need to get with the program. And Esther had to look herself in the mirror, so to speak, in the face and say, you know, is fear going to control me, or am I going to be in control of this situation? And so often what knocks us out of the game is what almost knocked her out of the game, and that is fear. You see, we tend to look at sin and we, always, we tend to always interpret sin as something bad that I do. But often sin is not doing what I could do and what I should do and what God's calling me to do because I'm too scared to do what I should do and what God's calling me to do. How many times do we step back from what we know deep inside of us God is calling us to be or God is calling us to do simply because we're scared. We are scared of what other people are going to think about us. We're scared about how it's going to change our lifestyle. We're scared about what the ramifications might be. We're scared that we don't think we are up to it. We are scared because we feel like we're so inadequate. We let fear control us. And Esther's standing there in that palace, and deep inside of her, the fear is just rolling over her like an ocean. Mordecai says, God has brought you to the kingdom for such a time, for such an hour as this. Esther, this is your hour. Are you going to let fear hold you back from it? Folks, I'd like for you to write this down. God's hour for you is never going to be an easy hour. God's hour for you is never going to be an easy hour. The hour, the time that God is calling you to and preparing you for and has for you is never going to be an easy hour. So often it comes to us when we're not ready, we're hesitating, we're not expecting it, and God says it's showtime. And we're like, oh, Lord, it cannot be showtime. I am not ready for showtime, Lord. And God said, this is the hour I've been preparing you for. This is the hour, this is the time. Esther, it is time for you to show up. It is time for you to do your thing. It's time for you to realize this is the hour that I have been preparing you for, Esther. And she's like, this is not the hour that I was prepared for. I was planning on just walking around this palace with my long flowing robes on and looking pretty and being nice. I was not anticipating that I was going to have to put my life on the line for my people. And Mordecai says, this is your hour. And folks, when your hour comes, when the time comes when God wants to use you, nine times out of ten, it is not going to be the hour that we would look for, anticipated, and it's going to be often lonely and harsh. But you see, it was God's hour. 
You see, when God calls you to that hour, when God calls you to that time, mark it down. It's not just your time because God's calling you to it. It is God's time. It's His time. Dr. Mac Brunson pastored the church that I came from here South Norfolk, he used to say to the folks, and they were still quoting when I got there, and I just sort of picked it up. He said, God loves to show up and show off. God loves to show up and show off. Mordecai is basically saying that to Esther. Esther, it's time for God to show up and for God to show off. And so Esther says, let me tell you what we're going to do. Mordecai, you go tell everybody, all the relatives, everybody you know, for the next three days, we're going to pray, we're going to fast, we're going to see God's face. I'm going to go over here and get all the people that I hang out with, and we're going to fast for the next three days. We're going to get before God, and we're going to beg God, and we're going to plead with God, and we're going to ask God to do a work here, and we're going to look to God and God only for Him to show off. So when I walk into that palace, that place is filled with the presence of God. Not filled with my fear and not filled with whatever the king might have going through his mind. It's going to be filled with the presence and power of God. So they prayed and they fasted. Can I beg you something? Don't ever make a major decision about how you're going to serve God and what God's going to do in a situation till you get before God and spend some time alone with Him. So many Christian people make stupid, bad decisions because they make decisions before they've gotten before the presence of the Lord and stayed before the Lord for a while. We give up and give out too fast and too easy because we don't get before God before we make a decision. So they prayed for three days, and then Esther got all dolled up, as we'd say, and she went in there, probably shaking in her royal robes. Because, folks, let me tell you something. When you step out for the Lord... Often we're scared half to death, but you say, God's called me to this. God's summoned me. This is the hour he's prepared me for. And even if I'm scared, I'm just going to walk through the fear and walk into what he's got for me. And that's exactly what she did. And God used her to save a nation because of that. So let me ask you, what is controlling your life today? Is it fear? Are you surfing or are you driftwood? Are you surfing for him or are you driftwood? What's controlling it? His hour for you will look scary and it will look overwhelming and you will feel inadequate. But seek His face. Don't settle to drift. Seek His face. And know that that hour is His hour. And He, through you, is waiting and ready to demonstrate His power, His glory, and His presence. I think if you had bumped into Queen Esther... As she walked out of the palace that day after her audience with the king and said to Queen Esther, Queen Esther, what happened in there? I think you would have seen a smile come across her face the size of a mountain. And I think Esther would have said to you, God showed up in there. 
And God did a work in there. And God delivered in there. And you see, when the sun set that day, they were not talking among the Jews about Queen Esther. They were talking about the Lord. And God loves to put us in places. And we are so desperate and our backs are up against the wall so bad that we got to have a miracle from Him. But when it happens, we can only talk about what He did. He is the focus. He'll keep you surfing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the work that God, you yearn to do in our lives if we will just allow you. Lord, help us to allow and to ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that the Spirit of God can produce the self-control in us so that, Lord, we focus on you and what you can do, and what you're calling us to. And so that, Lord, fear or whatever else doesn't control us, you control us, and you control the situation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, and today you want to say, I want to know Jesus, and I want to know His presence in my life, and I'm tired of drifting in life, and I want to know His direction and His purpose then as we sing in just a moment, I want to invite you to walk the aisle here and say, today I want to give my life to Jesus and I want to follow Him. If you're here today and you sense that God is calling you to serve Him in some capacity and you need to surrender to that call and seal it, then I invite you to come and do that. The altar is always as open if you want to come and pray. If you sense the Lord's leading you to become part of this church family and serve the Lord here with us, then... We invite you to come. In these moments of invitation and response to Him, let's listen to Him and let's answer to Him. And if you sense you're at a place in life that this is an hour and you need to say, God, this is your time, and it may not be the time I would have chosen and the task I would have picked, but this is your time and this is your task, and Lord, I'll say yes. But let me encourage you to do that. Lord, have your way with us in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing and come if you will.